Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Hadley Harris, one of the founders of seed stage investor ENIAC Ventures. Over the firm's now 11-year history, they've invested in so many amazing companies, including Airbnb, Cameo, and SoundCloud. Before co-founding ENIAC, Hadley held various operational roles, including head of business market strategy at Flingo, which was acquired for $225 million by Nuance Communications. During the show, we covered a number of different topics, including firm succession planning, portfolio construction advice, and where the world of seed is today. Without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Vouch Insurance, a leading insure tech company started by founders and built for founders. Built specifically for the unique needs of startups and venture firms, Vouch's fully digital coverage takes just minutes to activate, and everything from onboarding to claims is done through a single intuitive interface. Because of their mission of serving founders at every step of the journey, they're trusted by some of the biggest names in the venture world, including Silicon Valley Bank and Y Combinator. Because Vouch is an insurance platform and not a broker, it works with its clients to manage, mitigate, and avoid risk. Check them out at www.vouch.us forward slash venture unlocked. Hadley, it's so great to have you on the show. Uh, thanks, Samir. I appreciate you having me on. Maybe where we could start is the beginning of ENIAC back in 2010. And what I'm really curious to hear is the backstory of what brought you all together, the four of you. And what was that shared vision that you saw as the opportunity that really led to starting the firm together? So my, my three partners and I, uh, Nahal, Vic, Tim, and I all went to undergrad together. We're all engineering students at Penn. So we actually graduated way back in 99. So now I've known each other 25 years or so, which is uh, crazy. It makes me feel uh, really old. The kind of seed of ENIAC started in about 2007 timeframe. Uh, Vic and I... He was working at RE Ventures. I spent a short period of time at, at uh, Charles River Ventures before uh, joining um, a seed stage company that they invested in. And we were kind of talking about eventually getting into venture. And honestly, like the catalyst of why we wanted to start our own firm was mainly we just couldn't see ourselves, especially at that time, kind of spending 10, 12 years kissing a bunch of guys' asses to become a, a real GP. And it seemed like an easier path, which is probably not correct, uh, to start our own firm. We recruited Tim, who had a, a background in venture law as well as had been a founder, uh, and started. the three of us started kind of planning together. And uh, one of the most successful founders I knew was Nahal, who was a close friend, also from school. And I reached out asking for some intros to folks that could, who could fund us, you know, some angels. And he replied that he, he was in, uh, meaning he wanted to join. So we, we, we uh, after a couple of conversations, decided to do that. Uh, and that was kind of the very beginning. Started uh, working on it in 2008, started investing in 2010. And that, that was the kind of origin story. One thing I'm always curious about is in situations where partnerships come together and there's these pre-existing relationships, which I think are great because they do bring along an embedded level of trust that's hard to replicate. At the same time, we've seen situations where friends have come together and those personal synergies don't necessarily translate into a professional context. What were some of the conversations you had in the early days to ensure that from a professional standpoint, you would have those synergies and alignment? It was a long evolution, honestly. You know, we went from friends and it took time to really kind of get a working relationship. We were pretty 
thoughtful, I think, about that. We started working a couple of years in with a professional coach. I've now been working with, with, with a coach pretty consistently uh, over the last eight years or so. Because, you know, it's one thing to be friends. It's, it's others to have that working relationship. And in some ways, being close friends, while it has its advantages and around trust and kind of shared values, it has, as I think you were kind of alluding to, it's, it's, uh, it's disadvantages in that things can get kind of personal a lot quicker. I imagine you'd see that with kind of a family business as well. Um, so for us, it was really about uh, being intentional and, and understanding that we still had a lot of work to do, even though we knew each other really well. Take us into those conversations. You guys are talking. I mean, were there particular considerations or a particular set of values you all agreed on and said, hey, this is how we're going to operate together? These are sort of the protocols, and let's ensure that as we go along, things like conflict resolution are done in, in the right ways. Yeah, you know, if I was starting again, I think we would make sure to have those conversations. To be honest, it was more of a natural progression. You know, I think everything for us, and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about other areas of the business has been kind of constant iteration over these 11 years or even kind of before we started investing. And this is definitely one of them where I think we kind of jumped in and started working together and then kind of handled the different challenges as they came over time. So you mentioned 2008 and then really starting the firm in 2010 and then 2009, of course, was this barren wasteland of anybody allocating capital. How did you guys get comfortable doing this with four people with a really small fund? Yeah, I mean, the fund was tiny, 1.6 million, our own savings and some friends from Penn who were uh, uh, silly or uh, naive enough to give us money when we didn't know what we were doing. And it's, yeah, I'm very happy that they actually it did, did quite well because that would really, uh, really bother me. You know, we were still doing our own thing, so we were running our companies. Uh, so in a lot of ways, we looked kind of what you like more angel invested, investors um, and almost like an angel group in terms of how we operated. So our partner meetings were like Wednesday night and Saturday and Sunday night. We were meeting founders during the day, but pretty fluidly. Um, and then as our companies got acquired, I, I was the first one to go full time in our second fund when, when, when my second company got acquired. Uh, then we started focusing on real time, uh, full time. So it was really our third fund where I would say we were kind of quote unquote institutional. And that happens also match when we had institutional investors. Uh, those first two funds, I think, were allowed us to pick up a lot of experience, uh, but in a relatively unstructured environment. At what point, and I love the story of starting off with a million six as really your proof of concept. And I remember even back then, we used to actually refer to a lot of folks as super angels that were writing more significant checks and often managing other people's money, but still kind of in the early days. What did you guys see as the inflection point where you decided, hey, we are now wanting to do this as a full-time gig. It's going to be a franchise. It sounds like it was really the jump to fund three, which I think was about 55 million or so. What did you have to do to get to that point? Yeah, I think kind of a, a big... Um event for us was uh, we had an early investment in a company called Tap Commerce that had a pretty quick exit for about $100 million in, um, in about, um, I think, about two years. And that actually, even though it seems very small, you know, we turned a big, a big portion of our first fund, and we had a couple other kind of smaller exits. So interestingly, we had really, you know, solid DPI going into our third fund. Uh, again, these were small funds, so you're not returning kind of huge amounts of money. And for us, that was kind of really important because when we raised our third fund in, that, uh, in 2014, that was kind of the very beginning of, I think, where kind of most of the LP community 
we're starting to notice notice seed. They weren't really investing. We're, we're fortunate. Um, kind of our, our lead investor, a major university endowment, kind of had a program they had put together, invested in us and a couple of our uh, of other seed funds uh, like uh, Homebrew and Freestyle that were kind of around our kind of vintage. Um, so we were kind of good place at right time and had somewhat of a track record, even though again it was in this relatively kind of unstructured manner. Um, so those things kind of came together, and, and we had also rolled off our own founding uh, com- of companies and, and those companies have been acquired so we could focus on a real t- uh, full-time so that, that became kind of a nice con- inflection point for us. There's two type of uh, emerging managers that, that are formed in terms of what their prior most recent experience is. One is their former founders that decided full-time investing is what I want to do. The other is somebody that worked at a big firm and then rolled up. You kind of did both and your partner's had actually somebody did work at RE and they you know also worked at the company. How did those experiences shape how you wanted to build a firm and, and sort of the type of firm? So Vic had spent two years at RE. I had spent just a summer at, at CRD. So I my my experience was pretty thin. I mean, we really kind of came at it very much from the founder angle. And a lot of kind of what we were doing in the early days, I think, was what we saw is kind of bringing more of a founder mentality uh, to to seed. I think that you can be successful in both. I think that people that come from more investing backgrounds can be great kind of pickers of companies. I find, and I'm obviously biased, that that folks with operational and founding backgrounds tend to have uh, a little bit more to add in terms of their background and experience, but also kind of a certain empathy for the the founder experience, which is extremely difficult. That is really kind of hard to learn from afar. That certainly makes sense. And I agree with the empathy variable, which, of course, there's so many parallels to what you guys have done, both as operators and founders, but also founding a firm together and that you have to build brand and you have to raise money and all those things are hard. Eventually, you did hit that inflection point of becoming more institutional. And I think that was around fund three when you raised your fund size and you started to talk to some of the institutional investors be at the university endowments and foundations and things like that. You had some DPI at the time, but I'm curious if you look back at some of those conversations, what type of factors were they really evaluating in deciding whether to invest in a, in a fledgling firm? Was it DPI or was it something else? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think you see that a lot more now where uh, the, the seed ecosystem is a lot more developed, where LPs are looking for more of those kind of institutional signs. I'm sure that that was a factor. It was just so early and there were so few LPs that were even considering seed that in some ways I almost feel like maybe the bar was lower from an institutional point of view because I don't think we were very institutional. I think there was an interest in the space because um, it was clearly becoming a thing. To your point, when we started 2010, people would call it super angels. You know, people didn't even kind of consider it venture. It was definitely looked down upon by by the kind of the venture community as a whole in, in terms of its level of sophistication. By then, I think it was clear that this was a thing and LPs are trying to figure out how they're going to play with it. I don't know that they expected kind of the level of institution that we have now and, and folks like us. Um, I think the surprisingly, the DPI was a big factor because it's like the bar is low and these guys actually can return money and they seem to be in some good companies and they got in like at these crazy low valuations compared to the rest of our portfolio. So I think that was more of it, surprisingly. 
One of the things I often see with institutions that are investing at the early stages, be it a fund two or fund three or even a fund one, is once they deem a firm is investable, the thought is not only investing that fund, but multiple funds and over time scaling their their check amounts. And in your case, you haven't materially increased your fund size relative to your peers and certainly not tripling or quadrupling, even though the seed environment and the average seed rounds have increased so much. Can you walk us through how you think about fund sizing and how did you arrive at the uh, fund target of your last fund? You're asking kind of about shared vision and uh, that we all had and kind of things that we all kind of felt strongly about when we were going into it. And I think one of those things was that we can, uh, we'd rather be really good at one thing and doing that well. And we'd rather be the best seed fund or strive to be the best seed fund in the world rather than try and be kind of yet another kind of multi-stage fund. So for us, it's often come down to focus. And this is certainly one of those areas. I think we're at a place right now, our, our, our fifth fund that we started investing in six months ago is $125 million. I personally think, especially for a more concentrated approach, that that's as big as you can be and be a pure seed player. Um, that number may change in the future where it, you can have a larger fund or, you know, I, I doubt this is going to happen. But if you did see some contraction, a smaller fund would make sense. And I think you'll always kind of see us focus on that so that we can kind of do what we do well. Every time we raise a new fund, we can we kind of take a step back and consider, hey, let's pretend we hadn't done anything and what would we do? And there's a lot of interesting strategies out there. I think there's an uh, interesting strategy for kind of a smaller kind of A fund, kind of a call it traditional series A's that there's a little bit of a, I think, a soft spot, especially kind of in New York and the East Coast. Um, so we certainly consider stuff like that, but we always come back to seed because one, I think we've built up a, a strong confidence and we've been iterating now for 11 years. So I think this is kind of the evolution of all that iteration, especially around processes uh, and to a certain extent brand. And the second thing is we just really enjoy it. You know, it's a different type of investing. We really like to roll up our sleeves and spend time with founders. And at the end of the day, you're investing before product market fit and you're doing your best to get them through product market fit. And that to me is the most exciting uh, part of venture. And certainly that, you know, some people are are very successful at later stages of of investing, but I don't think it would be for us more on a personal level. We've had this a few guests on the show and we've talked about there's different muscles that you have to exercise at different stages. And I don't mean series C versus series A. I mean, really from where a company is it company is from a development standpoint and the different inflection points. The thing that I, I do wonder sometimes is the market's actually evolved dramatically since you guys started, and certainly even more in the last three years, right? Where the the seed rounds now it's not unusual to see a seed round done at three to five million dollars pre-product market fit. Valuations have shifted from what used to be uh, single digits to now 15 to 30 million in certain cases. And then there is an acceleration to when the Series C, Series A happens in terms of the Series A players now coming upstream. Has this in any way evolved your strategy with Fund 5 in terms of your ownership, how you think about how much capital you put up front versus reserves? And talk to us a little bit about it. And, and just for full disclosure, I'm a portfolio company construction nerd. I want to dig into your blog in a second, but let's first talk about Fund 5 and the evolution of it. It really hasn't changed much of our portfolio construction from a strategy perspective. It just changes the inputs. The way that we kind of constructed our model and and strategy um, 
the conversion rates and the size of the allocations and things like that are, are all inputs to the model. And then uh, it kind of it flows from there. We are doing bigger rounds. They are at, at higher valuations. I don't think we're, we've moved as much as the market. Uh, and then the conversion rates and the allocations in the series A's have gone up quite a bit. So we try and account for all that. But from kind of a strategy perspective, we're still doing the same number of deals. Um, we, we think about overall number of, alloc- of uh, investments per fund in the exact same way. We're, we're, we're targeting 36 in this new fund, which is what we did last time. Where we've seen the big change from a strategy perspective is in our diligence process. And we've basically kind of rebuilt our entire process and team in the last six months from when we launched our new fund um, around moving much faster. So we've hired quite a few people. We, we went from six to 12 people in the last six months. Uh, most of those folks are on the investment team. Most of them have investment backgrounds. Uh, uh, you know, we're headquartered in New York, so there's amazing talent from hedge funds and, and, and private equity and folks that want to get into venture. And that's also good because um, it's a good kind of yin and yang for our backgrounds. We're, we're more founders, operators. We don't have finance backgrounds. So it's nice to have folks like that on the team. And this allows us to move a lot quicker. And then we've redone our actual kind of voting process to get to make it more, give more autonomy to the individual partners. Um, not necessarily because we think it makes better decisions. And I'm happy to kind of talk more about how we vote and, and make decisions. And that's changed a lot over time, but more so that we can move a lot quicker. Because in this environment, it's really important that you can make strong decisions fast uh, to get into the best companies. Um, so we really optimize for that. I do agree with that completely. And especially in today's world where it seems financings are moving at warp speed. And some firms have done exceptionally well in optimizing for speed. Somebody like a Tiger, of course, is is a great example. Now, they've done it in, at least from an outsider's perspective, in a way where they're not sacrificing diligence. They do a ton of work up front before actually meeting with these companies. How do you think about optimizing for speed without sacrificing the appropriate level of diligence or making sure that you have integrity of decision-making that continues to ensure that you're making the right investments that fit within thesis and have the best probability of outlier performance? It's always a tough balance. Over our history, we've been more consensus-driven, I'd say, than most. You know, There are a lot of folks that are very individual conviction-driven, uh, funds, and, and then um, some that are more consensus. We've generally been more consensus, but we've always had a system that allowed for dissent because I think that's very important. You could have up to two partners actually not think uh, that we should do a deal and we'd still do it. They can't. They do have a veto, so certainly if they felt strong enough, anyone, and this is still true, can kill a deal. In that case, you would need a lot of conviction from the two partners. And I'd say the most common scenario for us is that three partners think we should do it, at least one with like pounding the table level and one who kind of mildly doesn't think it's going to work out. And I think for outsized returns, that's that's a, a fine place uh, to be. We have in the last six months just kind of responded to the market, given the lead partner, that, that table pounder, even more ability to move quickly. They still need to get everyone up to speed. Every founder that we invest in does meet with all the partners, often individually. We don't generally do a partner meeting. And then, of course, we have these uh, other five or six investment professionals who are in the loop and are helping kind of drive diligence around the market, around uh, backgrounds on the team, around competition and whatnot, so that we can move quicker. Um, So that's kind of how we've been thinking about it in terms of um, 
uh, that that balance that you you mentioned, which, which is is kind of difficult to I think get right. And it's interesting if when you talk to kind of even firms that are around 30, 40 years, they have very different approaches to to that question. And I also think the culture is great when independent partners can be advocates and and take the swing on behalf of the partnership. And maybe that's not for every deal, but invariable there is that deal, and that deal could be the outlier. But you know, in the past, we've seen firms that you create a weird culture because there's attribution. And if some partners done a deal that went badly, now all the other partners are thinking about voting them off the island. And we've seen that. And this was really during the 90s and 2000s. Not as much as now, although it's still early. How do you ensure that that culture where you really keep the oxygen for a single partner to be an advocate, feel comfortable with taking a swing when it's non-consensus, but at the same time, have some level of accountability. So we don't have any attribution and, and we're pretty kind of staunchly against it, uh, both internally or externally. Certainly one partner needs to run point with that company just for efficiency. So we don't share externally who kind of drove what each uh, investment. Uh, we've had LPs ask for it and we kindly uh, refuse. And you'll, you'll probably notice even kind of publicly, you know, we never assign deals to partners. So that, that's one thing. I think that the reason we're able to do that is because we're all founders of the firm and we have a shared history. I think that gets very difficult when you're Sequoia or, or, or any kind of longstanding firm and you have folks coming in at different times and you need to kind of be able to rate them. So I think we're really fortunate there. And I think that's kind of a very important part of our ethos. Um, and as we evolve over time and uh, kind of my hope is what I'd like to see is ENIAC kind of live on beyond beyond like me being a uh, general partner. I think that's something we definitely want to keep, but it will be much more challenging than it is when we all kind of came in at the same time. I'm so glad you alluded to succession planning because it is something that so many firms struggle with. While I know it's really early in your firm's life and all of you have plenty of runway, what are the things that you do to ensure that you're starting to build the foundation for proper succession planning? And specifically, when you integrate new team members, how do you foster a culture of inclusion to let them understand that they don't not only have a voice, but are part of a long-term plan? It was a big concern for us. Um, so, you know, it was kind of the four of us. And then uh, we started hiring real employees probably about four years ago. And then we've always had kind of one or two non-partners. And then again, just, just added six. So now we have 12 with kind of eight non-partners. Um, it's gone better than I expected, to be honest, because I was really worried. We're very close-knit. We have our own, you know, old jokes and all this shit that, you know, can be hard for someone new and we had kind of an honest conversation before we started this this recent hiring spree with uh, with our two uh, with Kristen and, and Anna who had now been with us a couple of years, and they surprisingly felt that we were pretty open. So it's one of those few things where actually we were doing better than than I thought. I think we all recognize the danger of being this like tight knit group. So I think we all independently, not 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 in a way that was probably too thoughtful for, as kind of a strategy point of view, um, put a lot of emphasis on being more welcoming and making sure that they didn't feel outside of the loop. And uh, we'll see, we, you know, with these, with these new folks, you know, some of them have just kind of come on in the next couple of months, but it's something we're definitely going to keep an eye on it. I think it's definitely a, a danger to the business as we think go, as we think about things going forward. And uh, to your question about secession, it's something we're already thinking about. You know, I think we do have a long ways. We're all 44, so I'd like to think we have, you know, a good run <laughs> left in us. 
uh, and we're still, you know, loving it. But, you know, these things, at least from, from seeing other firms, I think it's never too early to start thinking about what that looks like. And I think we, we all want the firm to live on beyond us, you know, uh, certainly beyond our kind of day-to-day involvement. And we know that that's not going to be easy and it's going to take time to figure out. Are there things in particular that you'd look for when you're adding people to the team to ensure that there is true diversity of thought, understanding that in many cases, when you have partnerships that have been around for so long together, you build your own echo chamber. Can you maybe just walk us through the types of things that you really focus on when onboarding somebody? Yeah, with our recent hires, we've really tried to uh, hire people that are pretty different from us from in terms of experience. I think all of them have uh, finance and investing experience coming in. Uh, I think the majority of them did some time in investment banking and then worked at a, either a hedge fund or private equity firm, so non-venture, and that's certainly something that they're learning. But much, but they all have kind of investment frameworks that I think helps, especially with the, a lot of their job is spent around kind of doing diligence, as I mentioned, very quickly <laughs> to try and get up to speed on stuff. So it's really good for that. And honestly, we learn a lot from them. None of us have finance backgrounds. Vic and I did MBAs, but I don't know if we learned anything. And we never kind of practiced any of the finance. So uh, from kind of a modeling perspective and market sizing, I think they're even better than us. So it's been it's been nice having kind of junior investment professionals that actually bring a lot of new thought and skills to the table. And what you're describing to me sounds like a two-way apprenticeship. You learn from them. They learn from you particularly as it relates to investing, running a firm and all those type of things. Speaking of investing, I mean, we've touched on it through different points of this podcast, but you wrote this great post along with one of your colleagues called, I think it was called Portfolio Construction for Dummies. Give us the Cliff Notes version of that. Yeah, it was really interesting because we've kind of struggled and iterated in portfolio construction throughout our history. And a few years ago, we went out and went to all like the OGs of seed, um, you know, folks that, that, you know, had been doing it longer than us, I think have tons of experience and talked to them about some of the issues we were having with portfolio construction, especially around um, allocating funds over time and uh, recycling. And basically, they all said, we're trying to figure this out or, you know. You, you know, folks that uh, had been doing it, you know, 15 years were like, well, we just raised an opportunity fund, which is fine, uh, it, fine answer. So came to the realization, it's like no one knows this shit, you know, and seed is different from uh, Series A and beyond in a, in a couple of different ways. You have a much, you know, broader, you need a broader portfolio for the same level of winners. And then the time horizon, you're adding, you know, about two years average full time over over A. So the reality is no one and you know seed itself started 14 years ago. So no one had really dealt with this. So we kind of took it upon ourselves to really put an emphasis on um, building our own core uh, abilities internally, uh, both from kind of a modeling perspective and a strategy perspective. And I guess like the, the the three things that I tell folks that are starting off, and I love spending time with kind of new seed managers uh, uh, on stuff like this. And these may all seem obvious to a lot of folks, but for some reason, they're not. You know, one is just aligning for the, the power law. Make sure you have enough shots on goal. I, I mean, a lot of founders um, starting a you know, pre-seed fund that maybe looks a little like our first fund with you know, 15, 20 portfolio companies. And that's, that's just not, it may do incredibly well, but, but you're taking an, a, a crazy risk. The second is kind of when you lay out your strategy in terms of allocations, number of portfolio companies, that needs to be a starting point. I need to constantly iterate. 
And, and that's why, back to your question around kind of how our portfolio uh, construction has changed in this environment um, with rounds getting bigger um, and faster and conversion rates being higher, those are all just inputs to the model that and the model adjusts. You, you, you know what I mean? It, not just the model, but, but, but the thinking. And so you can start off with, I'm going to do X number of investments and I'm going to assume this type of conversion rate, but you need to feed in the real data and you should be able to then spit out kind of a, um, the best um, uh, strategy for, for that kind of environment and for the results that you're seeing. Uh, and then the last one is getting recycling is extremely difficult. And, you know, we're, we're big believers in, in, in real recycling. Almost all institutional LPs want to see it. You can argue about whether that's the right thing for everyone or not. Um, but, but I think if you want to be an institutional investor, you, you really need to do that. And you need uh, to build a model, and I think we've made this available online, that ties in both time as well as the construction itself. And that was the thing that was always missing when we talked to other players in the space. They always had two models. One is like, this is how I'm laying out my construction, and this is my, my use of funds over time. But you need them to, to, to tie together or else you can't, you can't uh, predict what is needed to uh, properly recycle. This is a really tough and I, I don't know that there's a single way that's perfect for every single fund size or strategy. I think it, it does range. But let's go into a, a couple of things that you noted. So number one is having enough shots at goal. So not having too concentrated a portfolio, because ultimately you don't want to get to a point where your conversion rates are so low that by the time those your portfolio matures, you only have like four or five companies that are at the Series B, Series C level. Today, the conversion rates seem to be much higher than they were a couple of years ago. And a lot of times those rounds are happening quicker and quicker. So it's not uncommon to see a Series B happening in some cases, maybe two years after that seed round, which we would have never seen before. And recycling, you mentioned, is, is something that is really tough. And if you look at some of the small funds, let's say 20% of their total investable capital will be reserved for management fees. And then you have three or 4% additional, which is related to legal fees and fund admin and all of the other fund expenses that are generated. And because you don't know timing of those exits of those original deals you do, which are probably in the first couple of years, recycling is really tough and you often have to be creative. And there's a few ways that people have done it. One is looking at the future fees that you're going to collect and effectively deploy that banking on the fact that there are going to be some exits in year four and five that ultimately can be used toward those management fees. What advice would you give to somebody that's running, let's say, a 20 to $50 million fund that's struggling in today's environment because the conversion rates are higher, the amount of reserves that need to be deployed in a very quick timeline is, is higher, and the exits from those initial investments just aren't happening? How do you get up to 100% deployed? At least what we've ended up having to do, and it's probably the best option for them, is you is you look to is taking a calculated risk, which is uh, understanding when you need to get what back to to be able to cover your management fees and uh, plotting that out. So we tend to kind of plot out like high, medium, low scenarios on when we'll get cash back. We're fortunate to have some historicals um, that we can lean on, uh, industry uh, historicals. Generally, things are moving faster. So that, that makes us hopefully a little conservative. But we almost always dip into future management fees. And at the end of the day, we kind of always have the same conversation, which is like, 
if we don't have any exits in year nine or 10, then we even like deserve to be taking these. Like we really should just kind of move on to greener pastures and get a new job or whatever. So we almost always end up borrowing against that. And honestly, we've come really close. We've had some exits that kind of saved our ass because we were about to just not be able to uh, pay, pay ourselves. And, um, uh, and we definitely have had kind of like foreclose or forego a, a quarter or so on, on certain kind of costs. But yeah, that, that's the best thing to do is understand what is needed really to a granular level. But then at the end of the day, there's got to be some leap with it because you can't predict these things. You absolutely can't. And the other point that you just talked about, about borrowing against your future management fees, which could create a situation where you have to defer in the future, is that the conversion rates are higher today. I remember in the past, you'd sort of model out 50 to 60%, and now maybe it's 60 to 80% given the manager. How does that affect how people should think about reserve ratios? Because now more of your companies are going to graduate to that Series A, meaning that you have to potentially deploy more and follow on capital. What's the calculus that people should use in today's world? And are there situations where people just don't follow on in the A because the price point's too high and therefore should just revert back to a normal 50% of the companies I'm actually going to do a follow on on? Yeah, in general, if we think that the conversion rates are going to be higher than when we what we initially thought, we will do less in new investments. With the idea being that we can um, we can put more of our effort into a, sm- a, a smaller number of investments. We can make the bar higher and still get what we think is the needed distribution to have a, a really strong fund. Uh, where you bring up bring up a good point is in that case, you would actually follow on more into each investment. If you feel that those follow-on investments are irrational, then that's that that you should kind of question, you know, that calculus. Generally, and maybe I'm just an optimist, there certainly is some irrational behavior, but at least at the Series A level, uh, we have felt that the companies on the margin may be a little bit high, but that they're actually growing really quickly and that we're kind of getting into relatively unprecedented times in terms of the the end result of these companies and the, just the, the part of the GDP that, that kind of we're covering with venture. So we've continued to invest in our companies kind of in those earlier stages. Um, we tend to kind of, once you start to get into growth rounds as a seed manager, I, I don't think it makes sense, you know, call it, call your series C and beyond as a seed manager to be investing. It's certainly out of your core fund, but out of those early funds we've continued. So long, long, long winded response. I think in general, you should kind of cut down in terms of the number of investments you, you will look to make. And, and maybe that's a, a answer for a lot of the seed funds that are in that 50 to $150 million size. Maybe the answer is different for a lot of the nano funds that are $15 million, which might want to index heavily toward that initial check versus reserving a lot for follow-ons. Would you, would you say that's true? Totally. I, I think in general, if you're a very small fund, most likely you should, you should not do much following on at all. Uh, I, I think you're better off having more shots on goal. I should add, you know, there's a lot of ways to be successful in this invest in, in this game. Um, we tend to be more concentrated. There's also folks that do three times as many investments as us that are very uh, successful. And, and I think that is a fine answer. You know, if we do 36 and you want to do 100 investments, that's fine. And you know, you're not going to be very involved with each company, but your chances of getting a winner are higher. Best if you don't lead, and, and that has all these other ramifications. Where I have trouble understanding is when you're just too low, and I just think you're taking too big of a risk. And I, that's what I see, to your point, with a lot of first-time micro funds and would be much better off just you know, do your 25, 30 at least, 
preferably even more investments and have no follow, don't don't try and kind of constrain that because you want to save some for follows. I agree. And there's um, a number of people that actually have the same belief, including some of the LPs who have actually done the math and have seen some of the returns. Now, let's go global for a second and talk about where we are in the market. So and it's interesting, you started ENIAC at a time where we were coming out of a recession. Now we've been in this long bull market. And in today's world, um, technology has become a bigger and bigger influence on our everyday lives. And it's very clear that technology and innovation is this immutable force that is going to continue to exponentially increase. The market, though, in terms of capitalizing these companies has evolved from funds looking fairly monolithic to really mass fragmentation. And I sort of look at venture or investing in tech companies as a barbell. You have the seed in ecosystem, a lot of firms, early, early stage, not a lot of raised by seed funds. I think it's a small piece of the market. And then you have the behemoths, which you know I've referred to as aircraft car- carriers that do multi-stage, multi-geography, and are going bigger and bigger. And they're now being joined by crossover investors, being the hedge funds and the like. There was a great article that came out yesterday in the information, and it was by Sam Lesson. And his point was that seed managers somehow are somewhat insulated because they're boutique, they're early stage. But in terms of larger check writers, these, what we used to call tourists are really not tourists anymore. They're just capital that is going into software companies. And that firms like Andreessen will get bigger and bigger, and they'll approximate the next generation, BlackRock or KKR. And where things get murky are the folks that are in the middle that quite aren't Andreessen or Sequoia, but are Series A and Series B firms that are, you know, let's say 250 to a billion dollars. And his view is that that's a really hard place. And I think Mark Andreessen has said that in the past too, that barbell investing makes the most sense. What's your reaction to that? And then more importantly, like, how do you see the market today and how it may evolve over the next coming few years? Yeah, I, I generally agree. Uh, I mean, predicting the future is very difficult, so we'll see what happens. But my gut is that something like that will happen, that you're going to see um, consolidation at the later stages with much bigger firms. You know, people talk shit about Tiger, but I have a lot of respect for what they're doing. And, and we work pretty closely with them on a lot of our, our portfolio companies. They don't make sense for every situation, but there are certainly situations where having someone who move very quickly and isn't very price sensitive and isn't going to get involved, that does make sense. And I think a lot of the later stage VCs that hate on Tiger should really kind of think about themselves and the value that they're adding. It's clearly not that valuable if people are taking Tiger over you, you know? And I'm obviously, you know, uh, biased, but I do think that it's hard for those, for that, those aircraft carriers to address seed. There are people in the market, and certainly even when we were raising our last phone, had conversations with folks that thought that even they would subsume seed. And I guess the, the thought exercise I always have with that is if they were to do seed, how would they do it? And if you're kind of a $10 billion Andreessen of the, you know, of the future or whatever, how are you going to do seed funds? Certainly Mark Andreessen is not going to be leading them, you know. Uh, you're going to have to hire kind of junior investment professionals that are going to have to be driving those firms because it's just not worth your time for for a GP to do that. And then are the best founders, uh, or at least the majority of founders, going to want to work with junior investment professionals? I don't think so. There certainly maybe are some 
who have done it before and really just want to be left alone. And that's fine. And, and maybe it does make sense for them. But the mass majority of the market are going to want to work with folks that, have, that can add a lot of value, that have seen this show before, hopefully both as an investor and an operator. So I, I just don't see that happening. And I think that's why, despite kind of a lot of downward pressure, you see kind of, especially in kind of the crossover rounds and in kind of Series A, you still feel very kind of secure about kind of where we are. Those are all great points, and it does speak to this notion that seed in itself, at least seed managers, operate in their own sub-asset category within venture capital. So I want to end it with our heat check section, and starting off, the first question I have is the most counterintuitive lesson you've learned as an investor in your 11 years at ENIAC. Probably that sometimes you can do too much work or too much diligence, or if, if you do a lot of diligence, which we tend to do, at the end of the day, you kind of have to forget forget about some of it when you make your decision because you can get into the weeds. And at the end of the day, it's all about the quality of the founders and kind of the size of what they're trying to do and the kind of fit between the two of those. And don't get too caught in the weeds. That's definitely good advice. And it, it's, it's something that you have to go through to actually experience. The second question I have is really related to now that you've run a firm for you know 11 years, what is the thing that you look back and say you got the most wrong? In our early days, we thought we were hacking venture with a lot of stuff, and some of this stuff kind of worked, and, some, and a lot of it, we realized why why that's the case. I think in our very first fund, you know, the 2010 investments, we made a bunch of investments that were really inexpensive, and we thought we could, like, bargain hunt, and I just don't think you can bargain hunt in venture. You know, part of the, the calculus at the time was, hey, this company can sell for $40 million and we're going to do really well. The problem is no one's going to lead that, you know, next round. <laughs> so it sounds obvious in hindsight, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's probably the most obvious one. Those type of outcomes could be great for the founders, but it's never really going to move the needle for a managed fund. So the last question I was actually tempted to, and I, I'm not going to do this. I was going to ask you who your favorite partner at ENIAC is. I won't do that. And instead of what I'll ask you is... You've run across so many great investors, both as co-investors, follow-ons, and people you've spent time with. Is there a particular investor out there that most inspires you, where what they say most resonates with you, and you've sort of modeled yourself to a certain degree around what they do? I tend to focus or, and kind of spend most time kind of following investors that also started their firm. Uh, you know, I, I feel like it's a, a little bit of a different skill set starting a firm and kind of joining a VC. And for me, I think that's kind of the, and I think my partner's in the same boat. That's what gives us the balance to kind of scratch our entrepreneurial founder itch and, and BBCs. You know, I think if we had all joined a firm, we may have left by now to kind of start something new. So like, you know, there's the classic guys like Don Valentine that, you know, we like to kind of read things that he said in the past and, and you know, find that really helpful. And then there's some guys from kind of, I consider the kind of seed OGs that started a few years before us, like uh, Mike Maples and Jeff Clavier, that you know, we had been very generous with their time with us um, uh, over the years. That you know, I, I just think we've learned a ton from. So it's it's folks like that I think that, that are most kind of impactful for me. Yeah, and, and I would say that it, it has been amazing within the seed universe of how helpful GPs are to one another, especially as you go to first generation, second generation. You're part of the early days of the second generation. I know you guys have done a lot to help other GPs, which is great. Hadley, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being on the show and congrats on 
everything you guys have done at ENIAC and um, excited to see what you guys do in the future. Thanks, Samir. Really appreciate it. And great questions. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Metro Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Hadley. To learn more about him and ENIAC Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show and my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.